This week, Talking TV is brought to you by pop-up post firm The Finish Line. Dealing with everything from consulting to full post and delivery, they've worked on Car, SOS, Mutiny and Who Do You Think You Are, to name a few. Hello and welcome, I'm Peter White. In the episode this week, we head to the Cotswolds to spend time with BBC Three's latest village-based mockumentary, and we head to BAFTA to hear from the cream of the indie crop at Broadcast's own indie summit. We speak to this country creators Daisy Mae Cooper and Charlie Cooper about their long gestating comedy and how they went from a Vicky Pollard light pilot to one of the year's most talked about shows. In the news, we head to outer space to find out more about Amazon's priests versus alien drama, Oasis. We detail all of the high-level discussions and gossip at the Indie Summit. And finally, we look at the latest round of hires at Tim Hinks and Peter Fincham's new well-funded Indie. Don't forget, you can read all about these and more at broadcastnow.co.uk. Joining me at Maple Street Studios is broadcast editor Chris Curtis. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? I'm well, Pete. Thank you for letting me back on the podcast. I've been away for several months. I thought I'd been blackballed, uh, but I've, I've elbowed my way back in. No, the blacklist is over. And, uh, and next week, we're off to MIP TV in, in the south of France. Yeah, let's hope for a bit of sunshine. It'll be interesting to see. A few people have been talking about a renaissance in formats. Okay. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether some of these entertainment and fact-ent uh, concepts uh, gain any traction fighting back against the massive popularity of drama. And uh, all set to go. I guess we fly out next weekend. Uh, hotels near Paris, I, uh, I believe. <laughs> it's, uh, it's difficult to find good accommodation uh, during the, the markets. So I think the French taxi drivers make a bit of a killing during MIP. I'm sure a couple of glasses of rosé will, uh, will help that journey. Uh, first up, the news. Uh, Left Bank and Lime Pictures have disclosed details of their multi-million pound Amazon and Netflix projects as the SVOD revolution gathers pace for British drama producers. Uh, Left Bank boss Andy Howies revealed how it scored big-budget Amazon sci-fi pilot Oasis, and Lime co-managing director Kate Little opened up about the development of its forthcoming Netflix mystery, Free Reign. Um, Oasis is based on uh, Michelle Faber's Book of Strange New Things. Uh, You've read the book, Chris. Uh, Do you think this will make for an interesting drama series? Uh, the book's bonkers. It's very high concept and it's all about a sort of religious missionary heading to Mars to try and uh, convert the newly discovered Martians to the power of Christianity. It's kind of, it's, it's like I say, it's high concepts, big ideas. Um, it's one of those books that probably people used to say, oh, that's un- unfilmable, that's unfilmable. And then what happened is these massive giants, I mean, Amazon, a retailer, really, uh, came along and started throwing money at things. And uh, I think Left Bank and Andy Harris have enjoyed the challenge of um, trying to take a high-concept, unfilmable book and turn it into a into a drama series. Yeah, certainly. And they've got the pilot on Amazon right now, and uh, and they're hoping that they'll get a, a full series. But the pilot is, is uh, you know, very well-funded. It's thought to come in more than £5 million, pounds, which, mm. uh, if you're going to make something unfilmable, is probably quite helpful. It certainly helps. I mean, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? If you are in that drama space at the moment... And, you know, it helps if you're at the top end of that drama space, frankly. You now have customers that you didn't have a couple of years ago that are genuinely reaching out to um, British producers and for whom scale ambition almost come as standard. be interesting to see whether any British producers are able to get away slightly more run-of-the-mill contemporary relationship dramas, that kind of thing, or whether everything's sci-fi or period or, 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 or whatever it might be. Everyone talks about this, uh, the bubble and the sort of nervousness about it popping. But uh, at the moment, uh, if you're in that space, you're rubbing your hands with glee and uh, 
Long may it continue, frankly. I guess Lime winning uh, winning a bit of business with what is a bit more of a traditional show yeah, yeah. Uh, is good news for the rest of the drama community. Yeah, I think so. I mean, ultimately, it's a kids' project, isn't it, that, that Lime are doing? They're doing live-action kids. Well, there is not a, a surplus of live-action kids being commissioned in the UK, frankly. I mean, it's a space that CBBC are obviously in, but beyond that, the commercial players in the UK really aren't in that space. So that's uh, great to see. And, yeah, a domestic tale of, you know, teenage girls and, and horses a bit more kind of standard fare for drama. Kate spoke very well at our, our indie summit talking about the different development process and there, there isn't that kind of iterative um, back and forth with the commissioner as they give notes and tweak and talk casting, etc, etc. For, for, for both those SVOD players, it seems to be the case that they really like things to be packaged up. They, they really want to be absolutely certain what it is they're buying and if they like it, great. They go all guns blazing and, and hand over pretty decent sized pot of cash. You were out in Berlin um, at a Netflix event recently. It does seem that uh, they're working more and more with the entire British creative community. Well, they're working more and more with the whole European, I mean, which is kind of the reason they're in Berlin. Um, it was a slightly odd event. They'd thrown money at it, but it was kind of um, a panel with their local, you know, their local Italian crime, the producer of the local Italian crime drama talking about that, their local Spanish female skewing period piece, they, they, those guys talking about that. So they kind of went through. They were trying to demonstrate, I think, that they are producing local content for um, all the different markets that they're that they're now in, certainly the big uh, European markets, um, which makes sense commercially, of course. And for UK producers, they they are part of that mix. The advantage, obviously, is English language, which translates much uh, more effectively um, uh, 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 around the world. And uh, yeah, there is no sign of this. Um, the kind of Netflix snowball going down the mountain, gathering pace, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon. Yeah, look, we'll look forward to seeing what else they've got coming through. Next, we head to BAFTA, where a large number of top indie bosses joined us to talk about the challenges of running a successful production business. Kicking off the day, Endemore Shine Group UK Chief Executive Richard Johnston said it was becoming harder than ever for smaller indies to break through. One thing you notice, um, I think... Uh, and Alex Mahon actually put this up at the Deloitte's conference a couple of weeks ago, is how few companies are breaking through beyond that sort of what you might call the 5, 10 million mark. There's lots and lots of companies we know that are launching and uh, will keep launching, I'm sure, uh, and getting backing from Worldwide or um, Channel 4 or whoever. Um, and that's great. But I think the number breaking through arguably is, is as low as it's ever been. On the same panel, Neil Grant, creative director of Avanti Media, discussed these challenges. It's really been great characterised as the true indie. Perhaps I'm a voice for the, for the small here. I mean, I, my current company is number 92. My previous company was 125. Um, and perhaps here I am, surrounded by the giants of, of, of telly. And I just think the realistic position that many of us are facing in the smaller, if you like, smaller to the medium-sized indie, it's, it, it remains and is extremely tough. Um, and that there shouldn't be any illusion about what the business um, provides for us or, in fact, what we are about to face. And I think that we have to be a lot more nimble, we have to be a lot more adaptable. And with the limited resource that we have, these two powerhouses have teams of development, um, have an extraordinary resource, and here we are fighting against and trying to struggle to get our programmes mentioned and indeed commissioned. It is, in fact, a struggle that we will continue to have. And so is the, is the market fair? 
I don't believe it is particularly, and where 70% of the business is held by the top Indies, here we are, me struggling against the forces of evil. Uh, and, I, uh, um, and I say that in the nicest possible way, uh, um, um, but nonetheless, the real politique is, is that for the vast majority of Indies, it is and remains extremely hard. So Neil Grant there talking about how difficult it is for small Indies. Uh, Chris, is this a new phenomenon? It was slightly ever thus. I don't think it's ever been a cakewalk for smaller production companies. And the idea that a commissioner or a controller might favour an established production entity and some established production talent to deliver a big show with some risk attached uh, over someone they haven't worked with before doesn't quite have the same sort of reputation in the business. Uh, you know, that's sort of inevitable, really. It is interesting, this idea that um, it's getting harder than it was before. Um, I'm interested in this, in the notion, which I'm starting to discuss with a few people, about whether there are simply too many indies. Now, that's a kind of weird, you know, one of the things that's nice about the TV production sector is there are relatively low barriers to entry. And the, the, the basis is if you have great ideas, you know, you can you can win business and, and, and get, a, get ahead. I'm starting to wonder whether it's so devilishly competitive. There are so many people pitching the whole time, so many different companies um, after a, a slice of the pie, that the effect is it becomes more challenging for, for everyone. Arguably, that's a sign of a super healthy market, but um, I wonder whether there might be a slight correction uh, in the not-too-distant future. It's moving that above the 5 million mark, isn't it? There's lots of, as Richard was saying, you know, to get to 5 million is one thing, but to, to sort of break through to that £10 million barrier is, is a lot tougher. That was actually interesting. That was one of the original... Um, sort of ambitions behind the Channel 4 Growth Fund, that would give the, some of those indies the kind of leg up to accelerate. It's undoubtedly the case that if you get to a certain size as an indie, you have limited development resource in a small company to think about your next ideas if you're busy in production making a show. And that's sort of the, the challenge and the balancing act that these guys face. The other thing, of course, is that a lot of talent is kind of being set up in labels or sub-labels or pod deals, which is kind of a term from the States, really. But the idea that do you, does there even need to be a, a sort of indie company, a production company, in a sense? Uh, are you better off backing a couple of people sort of halfway between employing them as staff and giving them their own uh, entity, which might be little more than a creative kind of label? And I think that... Um, method of working has uh, become very popular as well. The other suggestion a few years ago was that there was quite a few companies around that £5 million mark that were looking to maybe sort of join together to become a bigger group, but not necessarily um, whether that's to sell or ultimately just to, to increase that development resource. If you are by yourself as a small company, I can see that it's easy to feel a bit isolated. It's uh, And it's easy to feel a little bit fragile. There's always that kind of sense where you're looking into the future and you can see a point at which, you know, if we don't win any more commissions between now and then, your business is going to start to look very creaky indeed. I think for all these, and it's one of the reasons why, despite the fact that there's no IP and despite the fact there's an awful lot of work that goes into it, small companies seem still to me to be interested in bidding for some of these BBC shows. They're going to go out to tender because of the visibility and the sort of uh, long-term future planning that you can do if you've got a contract that's worth a few million quid that's going to be in place for a couple of years' time. Having said that, BBC Studios has just today picked up uh, Holby City, so we retained the £50 million contract for that. Yeah, I mean, no great surprise. It's not... I mean, Holby's uh, doing pretty well, and, and Mark Lindsay was, was keen to make the point um, 
both uh, in an interview with us and, and on, on stage at our, at our Indie Summit, that some of these uh, shows are being put out to tender at a time when they're creatively strong. I think it's slightly ironic that of the, aside from Holby, the, the two other shows that have been determined, Question of Sport, which arguably was most in need of a, of a refresh and, and um, felt a little bit um, stuck in a, in, a, in a time warp, is the one that stayed in-house, and we'll have to see how it, how it changes. Uh, and Songs of Praise, which was given a refresh 18 months ago, um, is the one that goes out to the, uh, the indie sector. So uh, a few raised eyebrows about those decisions. Elsewhere at our event, Jonathan Stadlin, founder of GP's Behind Closed Doors indie Knickerbocker Glory, uh, revealed that he'd given away half a million pounds to staff and charity last year. The other thing we set up to do, which I think we were talking about, is um, uh, share our profits. And so that is a really nice way of running the company, I think. So I don't think there's one sort of creative genius in TV who comes up with all the ideas and stuff. I think we all make it together as a production team. So every year we give everyone a share of our dispersible profits, which I think is a good principle. What did you make of uh, Jonathan Stadlin's business model, Chris? It's not one that would go down well in the Curtis uh, household, I, uh, I don't think. Though, sadly, I'm not in a position to be giving away £500,000. I think it's really interesting. So at the start of the year, broadcast uh, in conjunction with a, a sort of third-party specialist, we, we ran a Best Places to Work in TV project. And uh, amongst a number of really big, well-established production companies that took part, it was Knickerbocker Glory that came out on top. And I have no doubt that it's the ethos, the wider ethos of the business, which makes it an appealing place to work. I mean, obviously, it's appealing if, um, you know, if you're a runner and you've done nine months in Slough and, and uh, the boss of the company decides to give you a grand as a bonus, that's going to be uh, very welcome and uh, quite unusual. But that, that wider ethos, that sense of we're all in it together, um, that sense of no single creative genius as the, as, as the kind of transformative figure, instead a company all pulling in the same direction, is obviously very powerful. I don't know to the extent to which that business, Knickerbocker Glory, can kind of be a template for others, given that it does feel like a bit of an outlier. You know, Jonathan said, I don't want to sell my business. I'm having loads of fun. And I think if I got millions of pounds, it might not make me terribly happy. Well, probably quite a few producers in the production uh, sector who might take a, 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 a different view. But there's undoubtedly something, and it's a constant struggle for all these businesses. How do you balance the commercial requirements of running a successful business with the kind of cultural um, values uh, that will allow people to do their most creative work. And um, that is the $64,000 question for uh, almost all of the production sector. Turns out treating your staff well can lead to a successful business, though. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you, God, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Um, there's enough horror stories in the sector about... Um, uh, unpleasant practices or um, uh, not terribly nice, whether they're power-mad commissioners or um, aggressive uh, indie bosses, to think that uh, occasionally the, the good guys can come out on top. And will you be sharing broadcast uh, profits with the team uh, this year? Yes, Pete, you can have your share of £4.50 uh, immediately after the show. Lovely, look forward to it. Finally, Peter Fincham and Tim Hink's new company, Expectation, has continued its hiring surge, bringing in Amy Flanagan and Colin Barr to run its factual team. Um, it seems that uh, they're hiring everyone in television, Chris. Uh, they're hiring good people, that's for sure. Amy Flanagan's been the sort of hot commissioner at Channel 4 for a little while now and joined there from, from, from the garden and quickly made her mark. You know, has been promoted along the way, uh, ordering good stuff, 
and Colin Barr. I mean, Minnow have been batting above their size for several years now, frankly, making uh, very stylish factual programming, which looks great and that often has um, really interesting layers of complexity with it. So the general impression, you know, from the outside looking at, at those two hires is, OK, well, they're, they're genuinely getting um, uh, best in class people. There'll probably be some um, nervousness around the rest of the sector and thinking Messrs Hinks and Fincham are going to come and pinch their uh, their top staff. Uh, they've got what? They've got a dr- they need to hire a drama head, don't they? Drama boss and entertainment. Yeah, uh, they've obviously put they've put some entertainment. Uh, the two Nicks, uh, Mather and Samuel Swift, are, are in there, sort of covering some of that. That looks like they're going to potentially add in uh, uh, there again. And drama is obviously a big one, uh, given what we've been talking about earlier and the, just the continued money sloshing around in that genre. They'll want a big, a big gun there. But yeah, this is this seems to be the plan: bring together like a crack team and see what they can all come up with. It's going to be an expensive wage bill, but I guess if uh, if BBC Worldwide will pay you a lot of money, that probably helps. Yeah, goodness, there are lots of rumours flying around. Ten million is the uh, the number that's sort of on everyone's lips for a twenty five percent of a stake in a company which doesn't currently own any IP or have made anything. We don't have any verification of that that number, so uh, you might have to take it with a pinch of salt. But the consensus is that Worldwide has given them a very generous deal. And you know what? They are backing in the judgment of those two guys with their experience and their credentials. And thus far, in terms of the calibre of person that they have hired, you can kind of see uh, what the plan is. As ever with these things, you know, all the reputations in the world it comes down to what they can develop, um, the formats they can create, the, the writing talent they can, they can secure. So uh, we will enjoy watching this space. We'll wait to see what their first commission is. That's your news. Thanks to Chris. Interview time now. BBC Three has followed up the success of People Just Do Nothing and Fleabag with Cotswold's comedy This Country. The show, created by and starring newcomers Daisy May Cooper and Charlie Cooper as Kerry and Curtin Mucklow, two cousins who live in a dead-end village. The pair joined me to tell us how they created the show, which BBC comedy boss Shane Allen called a modern-day Steptoe and Son. But first, a clip from the show, where Kerry and Curtin talk about the time that Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen turned up in the village. Over there, we saw Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen once, and once in the shop, and once up Birdie Hill riding this bike, didn't we? And in the co-op. Yeah. Because I was walking in the co-op, and he was coming out, and I said, after you, and he said, no, after you. He's so humble. So humble. And I asked him, I said to him, when do we get to see you back on our screens? Because it's such a, it's a crying shame, which is not, I don't get to see you as often. And he just shrugged. He just shrugged like that. Such a shame. They say sort of like, write what you know, and that's what we knew. And came out of drama school, didn't get any jobs, so moved back uh, to the Cotswolds. And it was just sort of like people that we knew that we yeah. just thought were just too funny not to write down. And I think it was also a desperation of not getting any work that we decided to write, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. It was just like auditions. Like I was so bad in auditions. I got cast in one part, which was Doc Martin, Martin Cleans. It was like three pages of dialogue. And I was so appalling, they cut it down <laughs> to one line in the edit. And I just... Well, I remember watching it, and I told everybody that I was going to be in it, so all friends and family, you know, 
especially people that had gone said, oh, we went to Raja waiting for you to do your first thing. Mm. And everybody watched it, and it was just the most humiliating <laughs> experience. I mean, I was literally on for about two seconds. And, yeah, Dad said, yeah, I think you've really got to... Up your game. Up your game, <laughs> or, you know, think about another career, basically. You started doing sketches. Is that how it started out in the first instance of putting stuff on YouTube, or was there...? Yeah, we, it was a couple of videos on YouTube, and that's what we sent off in the end to, like, production companies, just, like, a sh really short script, and then just various, like, YouTube clips that we did. Yeah, I mean, I was really frustrated because I think... Because my, my agent suddenly forgot about who I was. I actually rang her up, and she didn't know that she represented me. No. So uh, off the back of that, I just thought, right, what I'll do is I'll look up every single production company mm. in the UK and just send... This like it was like three pages of script or something and these mm. YouTube clips. And just the nerve of, of us doing that really because you know, it was just like a massive group email of about <laughs> a thousand emails. Is that what led to the pilot, which I gather was it ITV? Yeah, yeah that was, right. ITV. was it with a it was with one yeah. of the NBC, NBC yes, it yeah, was, Lucky yeah. So we developed a script for a while and then ended up doing the pilot. It's like three years ago, mm -hmm. but it just didn't. It did. We didn't quite click. Was it in the same form? It was more complicated, and there was more characters. My sort of character was a, a character called Dale, that was like. I mean, I didn't play it at the time, but he was like romantically, like it was like a love story, really. Yeah. But it just. It... Yeah, Kerry, which doesn't sort of make sense. Kerry's sort of like a bit of an asexual smurf, isn't she? Like, you can't imagine her. No. I think I think the the biggest thing was we didn't trust our own instincts, and I think there's a lot of people that get involved, especially to, when you're project developing something with a production company, and I think that dilutes it, and that mm. we sort of have ended up writing for other people rather than ourselves. But it was we a great, like, it was so valuable to yeah, be able to was. go through that process and have the opportunity to film something yeah. because then you know completely what you want from doing something you don't want. You took some things from it that oh, were at least God. useful. Yeah, definitely, because yeah, we filmed it in, um, it was like a week in our town, Sirencester, where we're from, and even that was like, right, well, it's too big to begin with. It could be anywhere. Let's make it more, but more isolating and suffocating for the characters. Mm -hmm. So let's set in a really small village. And then that becomes more interesting because it's more about rural life and trying to cope with boredom and stuff like isolation. It was really valuable for us. Yeah, it? it was great, really. At the time, it wasn't because we were like, God, we'll never be able to do anything again because we would almost gave up because it was so bad. Mm -hmm. we... It was so bad. After that, a couple of years later, I gather you just emailed Shane Allen, is that right? Well, yeah, I'd said, Shane had seen, had previously seen some clips, hadn't he? Yeah. And I knew that he was interested, but our second cousin is Matt Bainton, who did, did the wrong man's and things like that. So I said, so I managed to get Shane, Shane Allen's Allen. email, and I just messaged him and I said, Look, I literally want to kill myself. <laughs> I will stand outside the BBC until you come out and talk to me. And then he sort of replied saying, Don't do that, it's a bit weird and a bit embarrassing, just come in for a meeting. But I, I mean, if it hadn't been for him, I don't know what we would have done. Because no, yeah. He was just, yeah, it just felt like, I remember when we got the email back from him saying, you know, I've always thought about the show and... Yeah, what could it be? Yeah. So it was we just, so lucky, really. So lucky. You know, the BBC have been absolutely incredible and really, like, hands-off. Yeah. They've trusted us with casting, with... Mm. You know, they've been amazing. So once Shane was on board, you sort of had the support of the BBC, you sort of felt like that you'd 
we're able to take it to where it is. Oh, so yeah, definitely. They put us um, in yeah. touch with Simon Mayhew, our producer, and just immediately clicked. But like, I mean, even when we first came to the BBC, it was like we expected we were going to do like a, another pilot or maybe a comedy feed. But then Shane was like, oh, you've already done that, so we might as well do a series. Yeah, that, and that was, was just incredible. Like, wow. But obviously a lot of pressure, but amazing. Yeah. Did you then have to go away and write it, or had you written some stuff in between? Where we started from scratch, really. We binned off everything we did with the pilot. Um, all we kept, really, was Daisy's character, Kerry. And, and the fact that it was set in the Cotswolds, I think that was the only thing. In a slightly smaller environment than so, the Yeah, a smaller environment. First. And then, yeah, just went back to basics. We just simplified everything. So got rid of most of the characters, just made it... You know, I mean, the show is as simple as it gets. You know, two cousins who live in a village. Mm-hmm. So, But then you got so much more opportunity to be funny. We lost all that love element and the story, and then it just freed us up, which yeah. was so good. And then um, my character came in a bit later on because I wasn't meant to be in it. So that was sort of a happy accident, really. What is the process of writing? I type, and she sort of... Procrastinates. She I just think I suddenly yeah. get, like, want to fix the coffee machine because I don't want to write... <laughs> Just so anything. But no, it's quite... But she, you know, she always has, like, really good ideas, and I'm always trying well, to keep... Well, the best, yeah, the better <laughs> ideas. Oh, oh, right. you're, rubbish, you're like the monkey. Type. I'm trying to keep up with you, yeah. I'm but, more um, talented, to be fair. That is madness yeah, to say it that. is. But... It's so arrogant. She's become so No, arrogant. sorry, because he's really upset me on the way that he was rude to me earlier, so... Well, sorry. Is this how you are when you write as well? <laughs> yeah. 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 Winds me up. You are rocking that '90s look in the in the, the episodes, aren't you? With the No Fear T-shirt. And well, the yeah, because that I mean that is like where we're from. This town is like every, you get everything late. So like the hairdresser, if you go into a hairdresser, you don't, they're not current. Like you, you you'll get a haircut from 15 years ago. You like from vintage haircut. So it was trying to be just truthful and authentic. So yeah, I mean I think that my character Curtin was based on various people I knew at school who just looked exactly like that. The first episode felt like it had more action in it with the Scarecrow yeah. uh, Festival than, than perhaps some of the others where the, the comedies in some of the really simple yeah. moments, whether that's you doing parkour or, yeah. or, uh, or just <laughs> you know just going down the shops, mm-hmm. yeah. taking those, those comedy beats from, from really simple ideas. Totally. I think, actually, Scarecrow was the first episode that we, we wrote, and that's why it's quite big. And I think it still kind of has, like... Hang-ups. Hang-ups from when we did the pilot. And I think we actually discovered, you know, it was like with the Rob Robinson stuff, actually, it's more about the smallness of things that is, that's, you know, blown up to massive proportions for them because yeah. they're so bored. and the anticlimax endings, you know. Yeah, when nothing, because that's what happens in real life, you know. Yeah. You meet Robert Robinson and he turns out to be really dull and it's just as dull as you remembered him. Mm. But, yeah. You mentioned the family as in the sort of the documentary influences. Yeah. What sort of comedy influences growing up did you have? Um, just, I mean, we love, like, Royal Family... Obviously, the, the office, office. Brass Eye, we love Alan Partridge. Anything with like such great characters that are just you know recognisable characters, and you know where the references are so specific to them, and yeah, we love all that. Mm-hmm. And I think the the ones that always feel the most real are the ones that you invest in the most. So you always find them the most funny. You know, like, like Royal Family. We watched that when we were young, and there was a family across the street who lived, and they were exactly like that. And we used to love it because it was like. You could see people you knew 
in those characters, which is quite special, I think. Has anyone ever plumbed your house? Yeah. Yes. The house that we lived in before had a plum tree in the front garden, which was just basically ammo for little kids to get plums and plumb the house. Yeah, one summer we got, every evening we get plumbed. But it was because my dad would chase them. Yeah. And they obviously found it funny. Yeah. So it was like, there's nothing else to do. So we just, you know, annoy that fat, bold old bloke who lives <laughs> in the corner. But yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, if you stop chasing them, they'd probably stop plumbing the house. Tom George directed yeah. all of the episodes, didn't he? So uh, what, what did you sort of said to Tom? What were you looking for in that? I think we just, get, we literally gave him some references, like the family. There's another documentary on YouTube. Follows like round the first Hells Angels in oh, England. Oh, that's brilliant! It's from the 1973, I think. And even the way that shot, it's like a proper, it's a documentary, and it's so funny. But rather than like having set, cameras set up, it was very swingy, and uh, yeah, and, and sometimes it would be off camera when somebody's, you know, it'd be not on the person that who's talking, which I always like found really fascinating. So you, when it came to filming, we Tom wouldn't tell the camera guys what was going on in the scene so it was just so that's how we tried to keep it real so they would have just to try and capture it and which is you know simple but it sort of worked and also a lot of it was imp- we did a lot of improvisation so even he didn't know sometimes yeah he also did the thing where all the crew he's made sure that all the crew were like half male half female which was I thought it was a bit strange why I asked for that at the beginning but it just had perfect. such a great atmosphere on set it, it felt like we were back like having a school trip, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, again, it was like... just simplifying everything and, you know, going back to basics. And I think we had three weeks of film and it was just the funnest, you know, to be able to ab-lib and have that atmosphere where you're comfortable to do that. It's brilliant. And there were so many people who hadn't acted before. Because I hadn't done it before. My dad was new, like, hadn't done any acting. He played Slugs. He plays Martin, Mike played Carrie's dad. Slugs was our friend at school. And... Um, so, yeah, it was just so easy in that respect and so much fun. When you, when you knew it was for BBC Three, did you approach it in a certain way? Did you, given the sort of the nature of the channel, both in terms of the youth skewing and, and perhaps the, the digital element of it? No, not really. Not really. We, I think because we made that mistake of trying to write what we thought other people would find funny or what other people would like. But this time we were like, right, we'll only write what we enjoy, what excites us and what makes us laugh. And we, you know, we just hoped that people would, you know, find it, it funny as well. But no, not really. We didn't really sit down to talk about, you know, how we could make I, I it think, for young people. Or yeah, anything. I think there's a problem as well with like. I think if you do try and make it current, it sometimes it really dates it. Like if you're talking about Snapchat or Twitter or like politics or whatever, and we really tried to avoid all that, didn't mm. we? But you've had a great reception so far. I know it's tough to tell on, on BBC Three, but you've got the yeah. match of the day, post-match of the day slot on, uh, on BBC One, which seems to be rating really well. Yeah, Have really you had much reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, locally, it's been pretty mental, but people have, yeah, responded really positively yeah, to have, it, yeah. which is nice. You know, there's a lot of older people as well, like, being stopped by, yeah, like, who love it. People, like, I was stopped by this woman who's, like, in her 70s, and she said, or us as a whole family, mm. we're all, like the grandkids and then the kids and then the grandparents all sit down to watch it and I thought, oh my, I did not expect They're not that put at off all. by the swearing, which is yeah. quite nice. Where do you go from here? Where's next? Um, yeah, I mean... We've, we've had a few ideas, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, we still, we still live at home, so we've always got stuff we joke about and talk about from people we know. And We're not going to see Kerry and Curtin move to the 
bright lights of London. <laughs> no. I don't I think we could ever take it out of the village. No. Maybe when we start running out of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They what moved to the LA. the shark or something? <laughs> what is it? Jump the shark. What's that? It was wasn't it something like Happy Days? Fonzie. Yeah, the Fonzie oh, did right. like an episode about yeah. He literally jumped a shark. That's where, <laughs> that's where the phrase comes from. Where, where they, they, they realised Happy Days had reached its sort of natural <laughs> conclusion where one episode, to prove how cool he was, he got on a motorbike and tried to jump over a shark. Oh that is God. brilliant. That. What's the, I guess, what's the equivalent in... Uh, Probably a Tesco's trolley down a ramp to <laughs> jump over a ramp. Has it made you guys think about what you want to do perhaps longer term? You said you ne- weren't necessarily thinking of acting and, yeah. and you, know, you wrote this to, to essentially sort of help your, your own career. Have you sort of, has it helped you? Well, I'm still terrible at auditions. I mean, I've, I don't know what it is. I just go into an audition and I just crumble, I crumble to dust. Have you been on any since uh, the show aired? Can I? No, I haven't, no. <laughs> <laughs> They haven't asked you back to Doc Martin yet. No, absolutely Martin not. Martin Clunes. Martin Clunes. I remember just him looking at me thinking, what, she went to RADA? That's an absolute joke. Can you say joke. that about Martin <laughs> I like Martin Clunes. I like Martin Clunes, but I, I <laughs> can't act with him because I just crumbled to dust. That was Daisy May and Charlie Cooper, stars of This Country, which is now on BBC iPlayer. And that's your lot for this episode, which was brought to you by The Finish Line, currently responsible for work on Boundless series The Great Continental Railway Journeys for BBC Two, which sees Michael Portillo retrace journeys featured in George Bradshaw's 1913 guide. Don't forget, you can find out about all of these stories and more, including CNN's virtual reality plans, ITV reuniting the team behind Embarrassing Bodies, and a bumper renewal for Psycho and Shiver's ITV true crime series The Investigator in this week's mag or online at broadcastnow.co.uk. In the meantime, thanks to Daisy, Charlie and Chris. I'm Peter White, and the producer is Matt Hill from Rethink Audio. We'll see you on the other side. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 